So for this week's opening, I I have some exciting news. Oh Christ! I finally saw the first um, movie that Marvel will be um, made for their cinematic universe. It just came out last year. It's called Thor Ragnarok. God, it's I still the, haven't seen that. It's and and the thing is, I'm very I'm very bad about seeing movies, so I'm aware that the second Marvel movie, Black Panther, is currently in theaters, but I'm probably not going to see that until it's out on like DVD. Yeah, I'm really bad at keeping up with theater releases. But I'm gonna be really, trouble. really great, you know. And it's so interesting because people have said to Marvel, like, "Hey, like DC's putting out movies and TV shows. Don't you guys?" Are you have... sure? Because I'm pretty sure the first DC movie since Wonder Woman is going to be the New Gods film, which honestly, yeah, really bold move on their part to come right out of the gate with a Wonder Woman movie and then immediately go right into New Gods. I think they're really hitting yes. my personal view of what DC should be making yes. film-wise. It's, it's, it's really it's, nice. It's And it's also, and as we know, Legends is the first DC TV show um, <laughs> after, after, of course, the Iris West and Laurel Lance show. Which is just, as you all know, critically acclaimed, very beloved. Um, we're uh, reporting to you yes. live from a better alternate universe. We're reporting to you live from a better. There are no pictures of the president's penis in this universe. It's it's like it's like, what's the word I'm looking for? Hell, bad. Anyway, what kind of tea? It's chai. It's chai because I wasn't able to make it to Starbucks today. I'm so sorry. All right, let's let's go into the episode. Hold on, let me just finish this Cadbury egg. Okay, so I think you're really gonna I think you're really gonna like the name of the episode I have for this week. Wow me. Okay. This week is the fourteenth fifteenth fifteenth episode of the third season? Yeah. Yeah it is. It's the fifteenth episode of the third season of Legends of Tomorrow. Go back to Party City where you belong. God. Mm-hmm. I you know, and I'll I'll say this. I know we've been dunking on Sarah's hair and makeup. It's bad, but I'll say I I'll say the one saving grace is it's not like Damian Dark's wig where we had to see it every five seconds and contend with the horror and the reality of the situation unfolding. They had the common sense to really only have this be a couple of shots. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, remember, you know how like in Jaws, like they couldn't get the fucking animatronic shark to work. So they just said, fuck it. And they just go shark. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, might as well be. If you Um, have been participating in the extracurricular (laughs) activities, Provided by this podcast, you should... Uh, Animatronic Shark and Disco Yeti, uh, Distant Cousins. But it's the sort of thing where in Jaws, that Mm -hmm. made for a really tense, solid movie that Mm -hmm. played on a lot of established monster movie tropes. Mm -hmm. And then in this case, you just had... uh, Actually, more like Planet Nine from Outer Space when they shot all those uh, scenes of Bela Lugosi's character, like standing you know turned around from the camera so you can tell it was just an extra dressed up as him because he Mm -hmm. died in the middle of filming it and they just said fuck it we're not writing him out dying in the middle of plan nine from outer space is not a great way to go no Uh, um bill clemmer actually did die during the production of this episode but then they they dragged him back they said absolutely not (laughs) captain goes down down with the ship it's 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 definitely i mean listen um, we are definitely hitting Planet Nine from outer space levels of budget uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see that they can afford the fog machine from uh, the Rip's brainwashed episode. I'm, so that's nice. You no, know, actually, my dad has a fog machine that he uses for Halloween. So 
my dad who lent still in your dad's basement they may have stolen it from your house oh god oh god they broke not again (laughs) oh speaking of which the cliffhanger from last week did my dad hang up my sweater yes Yes. yeah he did he did good i'm glad Mm -hmm. oh my god that's wonderful i'm very happy to hear that um it's a it's a spring winter storm miracle yeah all right. Do we want to actually get into the episode? Because this was a yes. good one and we don't have to waste time dicking around it. Yeah, no, it was a really good episode. Let's, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned. The ending, we'll get to the ending. We'll get to the ending. I'm glad you mentioned That's... like horror movies because this whole episode was like really, I think, reminiscent of a horror movie in a lot of ways. It's a really specific kind of horror movie. Um, Which is a really smart honestly... thing to do when you've got like a B-list budget is to just say, okay, well then let's do it. Yeah, I mean, listen, most most of the best horror films don't have a lot of money, yes. or they shouldn't. If you have something so, you want to bring up, I'm down. Yeah, actually, Ari, I was hoping, as sort of our resident uh, vintage connoisseur, um, you. would you please tell us a little bit about uh, like retro horror and what you saw Legends borrowing from it this week? Oof. Okay. Um. Can you actually give me one second? I might have a book where I can actually pull up like named academic sources for you. One oh, wow. sec. Okay. Yes, please. Book this actually happened to be um at the top of my shelf, which is really first, nice. This is the first and last time we'll ever be. Apologies to academia. Well, um, I mean, you know, I I say academia, but when I when I say that, I'm saying like here's here's a book with a bunch of sources and like anecdotes and mm-hmm. whatever. My point is. Well, first off, actually, this is really appropriate in terms of what Legends didn't do. Yeah. Uh, here's the procedure that Boris Karloff had to deal with to uh, yes. play Frankenstein's monster. Oh my god, please tell uh, us. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, there, are six ways to, there are six ways a surgeon can cut the skull, and I figured Dr. Frankenstein, who was not a practicing surgeon, would take the easiest, which is to cut the top of the skull off across like a pot lid, hinge it, pop the brain in, and clamp it tight. That's the reason I decided to make the monster's head square and flat like a box and dig that big scar across his forehead and have metal clamps hold it together. The procedure was arduous, taking three and a half hours to apply every morning and an hour and a half to remove. Oh my god. Not uncommon for prosthetics. You'll no. usually see things. I, I I know every time like a Star Trek movie or a big like CGI no. heavy movie, a lot of um, face work and stuff. They'll always be. It took me well, like eight hours. Katie and posted them airbrushing the makeup onto her, and she sped it up. But even with it sped up, like guess how long it took? Airbrush. Airbrush is also here's the thing. Is this is just airbrush is the base. You can't just airbrush. If you do airbrush as a base, especially when you're trying to build depth to something that's got like. I guess they were supposed to look like scars or like black veins or they something. They were supposed to be veins. I guess, but it was like, it's you would have to build that. You would do like thin, um, you would probably do thin um, plastic, not plastic, what's the word I'm looking for? Thin rubber yeah. um, to kind of oh, build depth. So nice. And they don't have, like they just didn't have the time to do rubber prosthetics. And it's kind of a shame because this is the sort of thing where forethought might have saved them. Yeah. These are expensive. A lot of the practical effects in here um, were also, relatively, were yeah, relatively you, cheap, but yeah. they would have had to have known that Sarah was going to be doing this malice shit like, a couple of months in advance so they could have had this prepped it probably wouldn't have cost them too much but yeah. i don't think they had I this mean, whole malice thing planned out and so nobody really had the time budget or for knowledge to create this sort of stuff 
Um, well, I also think, and the other great thing about if they had done that is I think they probably shot all of the Death Witch shit in one day, so it's not like Katie would have been fucking in and out of costume too much. Oh, yeah. Like, on um, Dusk, like, on Dusk, like, Isa and Zane and people like that had to do prosthetics all the time, and that takes a long time. And they did it, like, they would do it, like, for longer, t- it's, it, oh, boy. I cannot yeah, believe no, that it, our budget is beneath a Robert Rodriguez production. Yes. Um, I'm actually going to go over a very, 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 very brief history of this sort of horror stuff. Generally yes. speaking, the themes of horror have, you had a lot of monster films in the early days of horror when just having a scary face on screen was enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, when we got to path monster stuff we started we sort of moved into magic this is when like werewolves uh werewolves are a really big thing in the 60s and 70s for horror like pre-slasher films yes there was a shitload of uh werewolf films in large part Mm -hmm. because you could have all the gory hallmarks of like a uh video nasty kind of blood and guts horror movie but you could also have the monster movie aspect of having a werewolf involved not just a random serial killer and then i think people started to get more psychological about it so they sort of swerved back to humanoid uh humanoid villains um with the rise of the slasher film Mm -hmm. and you had people who were nominally human um like freddie and jason and people who were outright human like michael myers and uh so on and so forth, but Sarah borrows from the larger trend of much closer to vampire stuff, which was in, like, the 50s, and the thing about a lot of vampire stuff, actually, is that the deeper you delve into vampire horror films, they have a really queer bent to them. I don't, unfortunately, have... I had a whole book Um, on... uh, I can actually get into vampires. The thing about a lot of vampire horror films is to understand them in the context of queerness, we have to understand that queerness... Uh, was considered a psychological condition that was treated and cured with therapy, medication, and psychiatric involvement for a really long time. Uh, We're talking literally from like the 1890s until, I fuck, we still have conversion therapy today. So this has just been a thing forever. And a lot of vampire stuff, once we got past the initial dracula as like sex repulsed victorian culture and we moved on to Mm -hmm. vampires as a broader cultural construct unto themselves Mm -hmm. there's a lot of vampire films that sort of look at the idea of curing the vampire of curbing their addiction to bloodlust and the key term there is the second uh adjective and there is a lot of vampire stuff is played as sexual and a lot of that was played as a divergent or abhorrent sexuality Mm -hmm. and because of that homosexuality was sort of par for the course in terms of the metaphor underlying a lot of vampire films not just in terms of like fangs and and drinking of blood as a substitute for like sexual communion but the idea that a vampire could be curbed or the idea that a Mm -hmm. vampire's desires ran parallel to the idea of um abhorrent sexual desire or in some cases, um, a misunderstanding of gender identity because homosexuality was considered a third gender up until like the 60s mm-hmm. um, and not a sexuality unto itself by some psychiatric schools of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that a lot of vampire uh, stuff concerned the individual sort of succumbing to the idea of an addiction, something they have to be cured of, but something that's always with them, something that, something that is exactly like how Sarah talks about the death totem and talks about malice and Nora talks to her about malice very much runs 
parallel to a lot of old school vampire stuff, mm-hmm. but also um, that and the idea, I think that's probably what they were trying to do with the makeup. But most interestingly about that is yes. aside from vampire stuff, they tried to take a slightly more high-handed psychological yes. uh bent on everyone else's interactions. Sarah's are pretty like part and parcel for your average vampire shit. But we got a little more Silent Hill with uh, Nate, especially Nate and Zari. Yeah. And uh, but if you want to go into vampires, I want to know what you now fill me okay, in, man. So the thing is, is that I've done papers on um, romanticism and on figures in romanticism, and so something you see, and this goes into what you said about uh, Victorians being afraid of literally everything. Oh yeah, the Svengali stuff. Yeah, it's Svengali stuff. So the Svengali is a character from the film. Well, from the book. I'm so sorry. It became a film. It was like a really popular book and then became a really popular film. And everybody is like, this is moral deviance and we're all going to hell. Um, It's from a work called Trilby, where Trilby is sort of this completely ordinary, like, I think just good, regular old girl who, like, I think is like working class or something. And then the Svengali comes and through hypnosis is able to create this beautiful stage persona, but she can only perform when she's under the influence. And he himself is supposed to be this, like, sort of dark, horrible figure. And, like, the thing that people... The Phantom of the Opera, kind of. Yeah, well, what people need to notice is that, like... And the thing I can just point you to is, like, Severus Snape is a really modern version that people don't even realize. Um, But whenever you see a character that's got, um, like, a large nose and, like, sort of sunken or, like, darker features and, like, dark hair, that's a Jewish person. (laughs) It's a Jewish person. I would yeah. also like to, because this goes back yeah. to horror, there's a character called Cesar in The Cabin yes. of Dr. Caligari, and mm-hmm. this is important for you to know, not because of random horror movie trivia, mm-hmm. but because sometimes characters like that will be hand-waved away as, oh, that's just because of the whole looks like Cesar thing, mm-hmm. that I, I, every single fucking main character in a Tim Burton film yes. looks like Cesar. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. There's, your, there's your modern standpoint. So that's not the same as a Svengali and just because, ha- like, it's not just dark dark hair and sunken eyes, but a lot of mannerisms, a lot of, like, mm-hmm. backstabbing sort of. Severus Snape is a really good example because he's the one who kind of dicks around in the shadows for the most part yes. once the books really start to get rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's seen sort of being a double agent or manipulating. And it's, it's very specifically the yeah. hooked nose thing that she keeps coming back to yes. that I remember thinking as a little kid reading the books that's really weird I don't know why we need to remark on his nose so much I don't think it's that prominent of a part Joanne of his personality and then I got older and I was like Joanne oh hates the Jews. Anyway. Joanne also hates women apparently so uh let's list things joanne hates i i i am so i i'm not even gonna get into how personally betrayed i feel but that yeah, i fucking I mean, hate here's that the thing. so here's the thing is that this episode i just wanted to mention that in a historical context because yes, when we go but it's the his, sort of thing where yes. anyone tries to be like oh well it's not that it's just they look goth yes. no it's because they're anti-semitic odds are high so history let's go into the history especially when you mentioned 50s horrors films there were three really big things that people were afraid of in the 50s because my favorite thing about horror is um, yes. horror says what people are afraid of at the time. Yeah. The three oh yeah. It's a really people... good arbiter of like yeah. what the problems mm-hmm. of what the other of any given point in society people was. People were afraid of homosexuals, communists, and Jewish people, and like they were afraid of them. And like that's not to talk on the racial elements of that time because, of course that's a huge component they usually had more direct allusions but to racial stuff very by that point direct the issue with that people had with communism homosexuality and judaism is those are things that they felt could be hidden 
Yeah. And so somebody you know could be secretly homosexual or secretly Jewish. Or There's secretly been a whole communist. big... And like, if you're one, you're usually considered to be the other two as well. Because it was just, yeah, yeah. no, it was, um, especially especially homosexuality and communism, yes. especially when you look into a lot of the uh, blacklisting going on in Hollywood, which incidentally, yeah. Walt Disney was a snitch for J. Edgar Hoover during that point in time. So this is just a really great lesson for anyone. Yeah. Like, this is great. We should just do this for a podcast. But my point being, um, a lot of this stuff, there was invasion of the body snatchers has been yes. ba- baited back and forth about whether or not it's a political text by the author versus, like, scholars. And I think at this point, it doesn't fucking matter whether or not yes. the author wrote as a political text. Because the thing about yes. horror is it's something that is very keenly felt. And someone may not consider themselves political, but the political and social mores of their day will still shape them because they shape how we see the world because they shape the way that we live and act in the world. So whether or not someone intends for a work to be political doesn't really matter because the politics of the day dictate the fear of the day and the other. And in a lot of cases, historically, that has been homosexuals and Jewish people, especially communists, depending on the era. Um, It, with that said, that kind of puts Sarah's whole struggle with malice in a really specific light that I can't even tell if it's intentional or not. Yeah. I was going to get into that because I was like, Sarah is a bisexual. And one of the things is like, she's with a woman and she comes out and she's like, I'm not good enough for you. And I'm covered in murder. That's and, the other thing. and because if it was intentional, that whole thing with Ava at the end, which we will get to later, yes. um, the whole thing with Ava at the end is even like nastier in that larger context mm-hmm. because the metaphor is also a little muddled here because yeah. Sarah has been an out and proud and content bisexual woman. So to have her struggling yeah. with the idea of being converted to the dark other side is weird because for the metaphor to kind of complete the cycle, the conversion would either have to be like forced upon her um, by something claiming to be in the moral right, yeah. or she would have to have been a bad person to start with, struggling with this this urge to convert. Yeah. And neither of those things are happening right now. So, so I'd actually... it falls flat. I'd which maybe is best. Love, I'd love to actually talk about the hope I have that was inspired by this episode. The one, the little grain of sand I'm going to hold on to. Because Sarah spent this entire episode, like what's really interesting about it is she, people reach out to her three times when she's in the shadow realm. That's just what we're going to call it. Yeah. It's I, don't, what it is. I don't think there's any point to pretending it isn't. But yeah, the, the, ups- the, whatever the fuck you want to call it, really. The shadow realm is the superior upside down and we all know it. I wasn't, I was trying to think of uh, the yeah. world that never was from Kingdom Hearts. So Sarah's in the world that never was. I don't, I really thought we got this all out. No, I was just kidding. I'm sorry. I want to see your reaction, but continue. Um, um, the three people that are able to reach out to her are Amaya, Zari, and Ava. And I just think like, first Amaya says something and that's sort of what makes Sarah realize that she's in the shadow realm. Then Zari says, you're hurting me. And that sort of gives Sarah some strength to resist. And then Ava says, come home. And so they're the three tethers that sort of kept her self-aware while she was stuck there. 
Oh, I def especially yeah. given that Amaya and Zari are actual totem users and yeah. not just borrowing it for the purposes of completing the elements mm -hmm. of harmony. Yeah. Um, it makes sense that the two of them would be sort of going back and forth from the spirit world and out, which I really appreciate. That should be their role. The whole team can help save Sarah, but Amaya and Zari were like born to these powers. Like they mm -hmm. are the ones who should be able to travel freely within the spirit realm. So yeah. that checks out. And Ava going is because it's like the power of true love. So I'm power not gonna. True love. Oh my god. What a. What I. What was there to know? I saw where she had gone okay. and I followed. And like, and like, let's shift from horror to just fucking the ships this episode oh, hold on. quick 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 yes i want to the only other thing is the one other one interesting while we're still on the horror track mm -hmm. the interesting psychological thing about this episode actually really didn't happen with sarah because it's the sort of thing that's so broadly te telegraphed yeah. because we know so much about this conflict that we're like all right yeah. fucking let's go 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 jesus christ but nate's confrontation with his grandfather oh and zari's God, confrontation her brother i want to do zari's first because yeah. it's a little quicker yeah. because it's mostly congrats to tala for being such a good actress because we always hit the stumbling point whenever a writer tries to have this poignant scene where like two siblings or a parent and a child or childhood friends yeah. or whatever have like a childhood rhyme that comes back as an ironic echo and like a moment of great sadness and it yeah. always ends up sounding fucking silly because a lot of these childhood rhymes are fucking silly mm -hmm. but she's saying stuff about like a magic turtle king and i'm just like i'm like oh my god this is heartbreaking like yes. i'm not knocked out of the moment i'm because she has such a sincerity to it that I, is so well Colin played is so talented what is she doing here yeah for real like that was just a really that was just a great that was that was a scene that was sort of not heavily elaborated on by much mm -hmm. there's not a, like a lot more we learn from it but it was so well acted yes. that it deserves props for that but nate's was really interesting well, for like i'd love to sense. talk about the, the you go in for quickly because my... wally and zari are both able to see this apparition and go okay you're trying to hurt me yeah like i i don't want to get i just because there's so much fucking discourse about wally and the apparition oh my god I, the thing is, I didn't even think of his as a horror one because if anything his gave him some closure he really yeah, needed i mean the thing is it's like i'm not i don't know i no, the more i kind of thought about this, how jesse jesse quick kind of took his plot line the more i'm kind of like i'm glad she's gone yeah, i don't like her i'm sorry i don't i i just don't and i i usually try to i know her actresses bisexual yeah, so she, i stand the actress in solidarity but it's the sort of thing where having wally talk yeah. about himself in such a negative context against this ideal of white womanhood is a really bad look and that's all i'm gonna yeah, say about that's, that. that's just what we're gonna say um everything bad oh god somebody do something also yeah, to clarify so done now also that's to all. clarify zari sees her baby brother because she's his big sister and used to read him stories but she was holding a photograph of herself and her parents and here's my counterpoint is legends may have forgotten about that well, well, because like, why would Nor? Why would you leave a a fucking eight year old behind to fight on his own? That's true, but with this show, it's like remember how Ray was seven, but also ten, but also eleven, but, but also, also nine years old, and like, and that's all at the same time in one episode. Yeah, all at once, and it was great. Um, so, so like, you know, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't really matter because the emotional context of the scene is more what's important. And if, since this is a sort of psychological silent hill, mm -hmm. you see your worst psychological problems reflected back yes. at you sort of thing. It makes sense that Barad would be younger. So I don't know if it's supposed to be for real or not in terms of that's his canonical age and they forgot, or that's just supposed to be younger him. Um, but 
the right. may I introduce the name? Yes. Go back to Nate. That was really good. May I introduce the segment? Yeah. Okay. Nate is trans. Ari, yeah. go into it. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, what you said was really solid. Like yes. everyone else sort of gets to be like, this isn't real. This isn't happening. And they get to have a sort of rebuttal. Uh, Zari less so because she's not directly like rebuffing Birod's existence. But Wally gets to be like, I'm moving on. I'm not doing this anymore. And not, and also acknowledge this as like an illusion, which I really appreciate incidentally, even if it doesn't matter much in the long run, having the characters acknowledge that it's an illusion allows you to understand that they know the rules of the game of the illusion trying to tempt you with what you love most shit. So yeah. you're a little more like, oh, okay, they'll be fine. But Nate does not get any of that. Nate not only doesn't acknowledge that this isn't really happening as directly, mm-hmm. Nate does not, there's this almost, I was waiting for it at the end of the episode because this has happened near the end. I was waiting for him to have a moment where he rebuffed that image of yes. his grandfather said fuck off i'm not like all this shit and he just didn't like there was never a point where he disagreed with or tried to argue Mm -hmm. any of the points his grandfather was making about him and a lot of them evaluated we go into this a lot but there's a reason i have this really thorough reading of nate as trans and one of the big ones is to struggle Mm -hmm. with masculine identity and what that means in a heavily militaristic authoritarian family that raised their child on stories of their war hero grandfather and their you know and the sort of neglectful emotionally distant father Mm -hmm. um creates this rift in nate and his masculinity Mm -hmm. that again lends itself very heavily to a trans interpretation but also in the context of not being worthy of amaya's love with all of the other issues with masculinity, that's something that Nate is also going to struggle with. And again, he doesn't rebuff or try to yeah. counteract those accusations. He just sort of lets it happen. And it is also worth noting that that's the only tempting spirit or the aggressor spirit or whatever yeah. got a little inconsistent that tries to physically harm the person they're reaching out to. Yeah. Um, Otherwise it turns back into the death witch, but Nate never yeah. sees it as turning back into Sarah. We don't even see it as Sarah until John comes in. No. So it's the sort of thing where Wally and Zari both acknowledge it's not real mm-hmm. and it's not happening. And because of that, they have a way to sort of step out of mm-hmm. being caught up in it because it, it, it sets it. It's, 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 I, I hate to say this, but this is actually pretty me- like postmodern of them. This yeah. is very, acknowledging if when the narrative acknowledges that the characters know the rules and the setup of the situation they're in Mm -hmm. that allows for them to have a broader understanding Mm -hmm. and perception of the subject so they're able to see it for what it is and walk Mm -hmm. away from it without you know um external intrusion like john uh but nate can't do that nate nate never acknowledges he knows the rules so it's um, only John showing up yes. with that outside, like outside interference that mm-hmm. kind of pushes it away from Nate. But I really hope we see that expounded on. I really hope we don't see that expounded on in yet another. Oh, I can't do this. I'm not good enough for you. I have to leave you because I'm so tired of that. Damn yeah. It. Okay. So like, let me go into, can I move into the team for a second? Because, um, the thing about knowing the rules of the game is the team very much is, that group of people stuck in a horror movie. But instead of all turning on each other and going like, you know, getting cabin fever and like, Oh, the real monsters are us. 
they're like, okay, I think we can work together. Well, here's the thing. Here's one of, in my opinion, the best parts of this episode and kind of what turns everything, like all the horror troops on its head is that Amaya's got her fucking leg busted and says, I'm going to fucking lead you idiots into victory. <laughs> like she's literally an old sailor in this episode. She's limping around. She's got a switchblade. Which I really appreciated that she just had. I just, that's why I carry 10 switchblades. Well, I mean, you do have in certain horror movies a yeah. sort of crazy survivalist um, character. <laughs> but in Amaya's case, there's no paranoia yeah. there. She's the one who's the best equipped to handle what's going on. Yeah. And I think it's the sort of thing when this is what happens when you have such a massive backlog of yeah. horror tropes to play in. They don't really pick one genre. They're just sort of uh, going a la carte and sort of slapping some stuff from the buffet onto their plate and then running away and not paying for it. Um, no, which we, is like we motto. knew we couldn't afford the buffet, but we yeah. went anyway. So that said, Amaya is easily the best repaired person this this episode. Um, Not just that, but Amaya faced a demon with a switchblade and did like pretty well. Yeah, well, she's still without her totem. She's and this is the thing is like I I kind of wish they'd explicitly said to her a little more like even without your totem you are better equipped to handle magical threats than any of us because it doesn't matter whether or not you are currently able to channel a bear. You understand the rules of the game, especially when you're dealing with spirits and magic, and knowing the rules makes a really big difference mm -hmm. because there are rules. And in John's case, John is from a very different school where you have to know yeah. the rules to break the rules. Mm -hmm. And to get... I don't want to get into Constantine yet because I want to stay with the team. Um, yeah. But I got a whole thing about that and the way they're handling his magic. But the team didn't really... There was that one moment where everybody succumbed to pressure yeah. that I thought was really good. And also, mm -hmm. very interestingly, the camera pulls away when they're having a screaming match. And we don't see anyone's faces while they're really, like, screaming at each other. Mm -hmm. Which I think is kind of an indicator that this isn't really them. And they're in a heightened state of, like, emotional distress. That they wouldn't really mm -hmm. be saying these things if they weren't. But the point i remember at the start of the episode when sarah was like all right mick go get Lyca," and mick goes i'm not kidnapping a dog um mm -hmm. i was like oh he's still upset about axel and he makes it pretty clear that when mm -hmm. nate flips out on him for leaving ray and letting amaya get hurt and all these other things uh that he didn't want to get involved with the dog he didn't want to hurt an animal because he was still very clearly upset about what had happened to his pet which is like pretty legit mm -hmm. and also autistic as hell um but i think that goes without saying at this point but they all sort of had that screaming match and then realized, okay, we can argue later. We need to pull mm -hmm. our shit together and fight this. And the legends might be a fucking mess and they might have a bunch of in, in, like internal demons and struggles and things to solve. But they are, this is another found family thing where they close ranks real fast when there's they, an outside. Not only do they close ranks real fast, but also, okay, so a couple other great things is like, first of all, they knock Ray out. And that's yeah. because everybody sort of needs to look in themselves and get in touch with their own goodness. And, and Ray can't be telling you you have it. You have to find yeah, it. Yeah, like, keeping Ray around when everybody has to find their own goodness is kind of cheating. Yeah. And then the second thing is just when Ava realizes that Sarah's a demon now and phases in and sees that she's like, what's going on? And everyone's like, don't worry, Amaya's in charge. And Ava's like, oh, thank God. Oh, Jesus. Why isn't she just in charge all the time? I would be so much less worried. <laughs> Ava, like... oh, thank God. We've, we've <laughs> entered the best timeline. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is definitely a case for um, Captain G-Way, I'm not going to lie. 
Um, I mean, it, it really always has been. Amaya, Amaya the only reason Amaya is not in charge is I think she's just having too much fun not being responsible yeah, when she doesn't have to be. Too much fun. She's she's like the whichever one is the younger uh, prince that they're like. I don't have to be king. I don't have to Harry, do shit. I just go hang Harry. out and have parties. She's the Prince Harry of let. How dare you, <laughs> Maya, sweetie. I'm so sorry. I meant like in terms of general approach to being an authority figure. She's like, I don't. I was gonna say that she just enjoys um dicking around, and I mean that literally way too much. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But it is the sort of thing where having a Maya, I think, also an authority, is important because Zari is just as smart and Mick Mm -hmm. is just as tough. But Amaya inspires them all to sort of come together the same way that Sarah does, even if Sarah is a little more destructive and reckless. But Sarah and Amaya both have those qualities that aren't just makes the team soft, but makes the team united. Because, like, Ray makes everybody soft. Ray makes everybody better. But Ray doesn't really Mm -hmm. incite anyone to action. He doesn't have that kind of vision. He's not telling them what to do. He's just telling them they can do it because they're good people. But Sarah's like, okay, we're all good people. Now we're going to go kick some ass. And Amaya inspires that the same way that Sarah does, Mm -hmm. which is really good and really what you need in this situation. Like, if you had to pick a Legends character to be on your team in, like, a horror movie scenario, I would... 100% 100% no questions asked pick Amaya every fucking time every time also because she does carry a switchblade on her she carries a switchblade and in most situations she has the animal totem thing so yeah completely- if her if her carrying a switchblade and wearing a leather jacket isn't bi culture I don't know what is. It, is it is the closest thing to bi culture we have um, that isn't just Sarah's continued existence but well yeah because what does Sarah also do carry a switchblade wear a leather jacket <laughs> and wear leather jackets pretty often yeah they're, uh, they're sisters that- in bi sexuality also reminds me of something going back to horror movies briefly the thing about a lot of horror scenarios and setups is Mm -hmm. they all sort of gamble on the premise that we're gonna be cool going along for a ride in a world where characters in Mm -hmm. a horror movie have never seen a horror movie and somehow horror literature horror as a concept was yes. just never created because I guess I assume Mary Shelley just walked into the ocean because she couldn't fucking take Lord Byron anymore. So we never got horror. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, this was not an episode that did that. This was an yeah. episode that had I, you and I had a really long talk about genre savviness as a mm-hmm. concept yes. before, and I'm not going to go into it too much here because we'd be here for the next 30 years. We would, be. but Basically, this was a setup where the characters acted in ways that you could tell they understood the rules and the setup of the setting that they had been placed into, but were capable of dealing with it in a way that felt meaningful. And this actually ties into, normally I think that D&D metaphors can be a little hackneyed. Or at least a little silly and yeah. like self-indulgent because, oh, the writers are such big nerds, haha. Mm-hmm. But it kind of, this episode is structured in a lot of ways like a D&D campaign. Yes. And like so- in, a, in a way where I'm like, no, this was a good episode to put that in, which I don't usually say a lot. And I think, do we want to take that as the chance to trans- transition into John and Gary and Ava? No, I'm just surprised that we're even like actually transitioning into things this episode instead of doing what we normally do. I, I said, I feel like last episode was a little disjointed. And I mean, in our defense, last episode's plot was a little disjointed and messy, but this I has a much more. I remember what happened. Elvis is a necromancer. Oh, um, right, yes. Yeah, that's literally all I care about. So that said, this episode had a much more consistent, coherent narrative arc, in large part because, yeah, they did kind of structure it like a D&D campaign, which is mm-hmm. really smart. So first things first, um, 
let's just start with Ava's behavior during this episode before the end, because the ending is a beast unto itself. Um, Ava is the softest, is, most beautiful I, woman. You know what? Sarah, Sarah can, Sarah can leave Ava. Sarah can leave Ava because I'm going to date Ava because Ava is the best girlfriend. Um, yeah. There is nothing like, I mean, to to get like serious for a second, that opening scene when Sarah has a nightmare and Ava just like like wakes up and immediately goes to grab her, like, hey, it's okay. Like within the same movement, the same breath, she is so loving and supportive and tender. And even though she is jealous a little bit, mm-hmm. it is a corrosive, destructive jealousy. It's not presented as somehow being more dramatic jealousy than maybe Ava's right. Yeah. Because Era's bisexual. It's just portrayed as like garden variety jealousy, which is really important because jealousy, when a, when a character is jealous about a bisexual partner possibly having a romantic interest, mm-hmm. it's usually played for more drama and intrigue and frames it as a maybe or maybe not situation. Mm-hmm. He said, she said, but this was more Ava's explicitly jealous without any other, like any grounds for actual jealousy. Mm-hmm. And the narrative sticks to that and that means a lot. But that said, um, Ava is still so sweet and devoted and mm-hmm. determined on top of that, that yep. it's another good thing is the jealousy doesn't consume her nope. and like make her question everything about Sarah. She's like, I have this feeling it's completely separate from my feelings for Sarah. And so I'm going to go save Sarah because that's, what's more important right now. And mm-hmm. that really, that was so fucking good. Like she was so consistently devoted and also really funny. This episode, like her, her yeah. back- forth with John and Gary was really fun because they're the exact kind of characters you want playing foils for the comically serious type like mm-hmm. she is. I love that. I mean, I also just, I was like, this please help this lesbian. Yeah, no, she was so fucking tired. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, the great thing about the jealousy and, like, the bisexuality is that she voices this and, like, and this is why shows when they're like, we have a gay or we have two gay it's like and they're both not, dating. And like that's not good enough. Like John comes in as a bisexual and says, "Hey, like maybe reconsider this." And to have and another it, bisexual character saying this to one bi like that a bisexual character's partner who is not bisexual yeah. does matter. And it, it matters, matters a it's lot. not just John rebuffing like the the issue. I've used rebuffing too much as like, I'm sorry. I I've been playing too much Fire Emblem, so I'm thinking of buffs and debuffs, and I'm like that's so my brain's going there. But my point is, is John telling Ava that she's wrong and being irrational and overreacting doesn't just come off. It's not framed or shot or written or sort of centered within the context of the narrative. Like it's John telling Ava these things because he secretly still holds a candle for Sarah Mm -hmm. and that's creating drama because, Oh, maybe Sarah will leave Ava for John. John picked one of his cigarettes off, off the floor of a McDonald's and ate it. So no, she's not gonna because he's dumb and bad at everything. And (laughs) it's good that it's not portrayed as John trying to lie to Ava so he can have Sarah for himself because oh you know how those bisexuals are like it's just him telling her you're being irrational not framed as part of a larger dramatic scheme Mm -hmm. and that really works because it makes the idea that John is telling her as another bisexual person she needs to cool it really meaningful and not duplicitous because he's also saying like hey um and he doesn't say it in like a mean way to her who doesn't make it like bisexuals versus lesbians or something like that he's just like hey sarah well i mean because here's the thing is he called sarah damaged and ava's like the second ava's like sarah isn't damaged john is like oh okay this is true love i guess 
Yeah, and I think I think and that's the thing is John was a bit of a dick about Sarah in this episode, but number one He's that is a bastard. He is he is a bastard. He is he is a he has a very good heart, but he is a bastard. And that's an important facet of his character. But that said, the fact that he was a dick about Sarah in this episode was actually kind of him caring about Sarah because he's just, he he's only really a dick about Sarah when Ava's present because he is trying to prod her for a reaction. He's trying to see if she's going to behave in a way where he can be like, oh, this one's trouble, or oh, I should warn Sarah that she was like saying this, this, or this behind her back. It is John's way of looking out for Sarah by trying to goad Ava into being honest with him mm-hmm. because he can't just come out and ask like, how do you feel about Sarah? Because and fairly, Ava would probably clam up and not tell him shit mm-hmm. because she has no reason to. But if he goads her, he can get an emotional response from her and sort of assess her feelings for Sarah and that's what he wants um it could probably it could potentially lead into him wanting to use those feelings to use her as a part of this larger plot against malice to save mm-hmm. or destroy Sarah because John's been the one who's like hey we should probably kill Sarah if it comes to it but I did think that that was very in line with his characterization mm-hmm. the only complaint I have about his characterization and this isn't so much his characterization so much as it is John is, I know I've said this before, but John's magic isn't ceremony and fancy words and magic doodads and trinkets and tchotchkes and chanting and mother's tears and shit like that. I absolutely could believe that he would um, sacrifice a chicken for someone's marriage. Like, that's legit. That's 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 fine magic. But the whole, oh, the ancient rooms of Mesopotamian Ereshkigals, like, shut up. It's so, like, you don't. Shut I, it, I, nerd. It's just, it's just, it's not really, it's more in line with Zatanna. John doesn't really do that. John's not. Oh, that reminds me. Should we mention that Matt Ryan has been tapped as a series regular next season? <laughs> eh, I figured, I figured everyone is listening to this podcast I mean, knows like, about the it. The other thing is that people are like, oh, does that mean it's a season four? And like, yeah, pretty much because like. They've all but unofficially confirmed a season when four. When you sign a contract, you get some money up front. So and I have seen a few articles saying they're renewing it, but I don't think I there's been an official. I saw someone saying it was a secret renewal, and I'm like, and then. Well, it's the sort of thing where that's probably like it, when they say secret, they might mean that it's before the official CW press release, but somebody knows somebody and published it ahead of time. It doesn't matter. I, there's no way they're not getting a fourth season. Um, Knockwood, though, mm-hmm. because this fucking network. But um, you have to pay someone when you sign them, so they wouldn't. This network is not rolling in money they're not going to give matt ryan money uh just to tell them sexy car washes do you think they had to have to afford matt ryan uh too many um way too many and it's like freezing cold in vancouver right now so that was not fun (laughs) there's like they all had to go to the er afterwards yeah, no, that's really bad. Do not wash your car in the snow, kids. Um, Do not have a sexy car wash in the Vancouver winter. I cannot stress this enough. Um, with that said, I mean, I, I don't I don't necessarily mind that they're taking... It, it's just more kind of like, he should have a super soaker full of holy water. Like, this is... I don't... Don't try it, demons. I It, it, it would almost make sense and fit more in with Legend's thematic it makes more sense for john constantine to be dancing on the wave rider like it's my bridge now yeah like it, it makes he should not be treated as seriously magic wise as i think they're trying to and i don't know if that's because they're trying to have him have like a badass confrontation with malice or whatever but like i don't really the best constantine stories are when he's not 
a badass. When he's very smart, he's more of a trickster archetype than a, you know, a know-it-all arcanist kind of badass. He's not a Lara Croft. He's, he's a... He's like an Elohira or a Loki type where he gets out of doing something by virtue of gaming the system because mm-hmm. he's smarter and he knows the rules, but he's not going to follow the rules and he's going to exploit the shit out the of Jeff them. The Jeff Winger quote, I'll always go to the extra mile to avoid doing more work. Yeah, like that's like that's legit. John's like, two I mean, best moments this episode were when he kissed Gary straight on the mouth. Nice. And when he is like, yeah, Astra, I'll make the deal with you. And like, we're all watching and I'm like, how stupid is Malice? What's the sort of thing where John also has one of his big moments was basically yeah. unbargaining his soul back from Satan and getting Satan to cure him of lung cancer in the bargain. So John yeah. is the king of exact words deals with demons. So I'm actually a little surprised they didn't have him agree to a bargain that actually had him you know open up the demon rules and be like uh actually first of all because that's more consistent but i think that was more we were pressed for time Mm -hmm. but it makes more sense narratively like that's something that's gonna have to come up because john is a very i never said i would do this exactly Mm -hmm. so you never asked so i did it this way sort of you know all the all the little like weasley workarounds of the system he's good at that um that said, the other thing I liked about John's kiss with uh, kiss with Gary is that it was it was one of those like oh we were so like excited that like you know we like had the over emotional reaction, but they didn't have the thing that sometimes happens with that moment or that concept in a same sex couple where one or both of the parties has like an ew oh my god I can't believe we just did that reaction. There's never a moment where it's like oh John that was so fucking gross and over the top why'd you have to do that mm-hmm. like. That's really nice because I know it sounds like my bar is very low, but all of the little things we've been talking about in this episode are things I don't really see happening on other shows because most yeah. of the shows don't have multiple bisexual or uh, especially bisexual characters. And they don't, um, you know, there's just, it was framed so nicely. There was no, ugh, I can't believe I just kissed him. Oh my God. There was none of that. Like, like it Gary was, it was not only so happy to have kissed John on the mouth, but then that's actually what gets Ava to like John is because, and like, and here's my favorite thing about Ava and Gary is that <laughs> Gary, is, Gary is Ava's best friend. He's her best friend by default. Um, and that's because Ava's not very good at making friends, but I really do love that. Like, I, I think that's the thing is they're both very funny because Ava is very dry and Jess has a really good, not, I mean, like Nick, Nick and Tala are still the funniest outright, Mm -hmm. but Jess has a pretty good sense of being Um, the the stoic and the, you know, the the straight man, um, in the face of enthusiasm or general bastardry in John's case. Which was really good, so she plays off with Gary really well because Gary is just over enthusiastic all the time about everything. I mean, the best thing also is that like if you like sort of get if we could get an episode that was like poor fucking Ava having to deal with Nate and Zari. Like just Zari, like I understand how you feel, Ava. My best friend is Nate. Yeah, and like that, and, and Ava, I, um, Ava dealing with uh, Nate and Zari would have a very similar dynamic to Ava dealing with uh gary and john so that would actually be a really nice trio to see interact um Mm -hmm. in the future 
Um, the other thing that's interesting is maybe they intend for the Time Bureau to stick around in season four because maybe Gary's going to be. Gary is similar to one of John's on again, off again boyfriends in the comics. And mm-hmm. well, boy, you know, like his whatever. Um, in terms of you know appearance, general behavior, and mannerism, so mm-hmm. it makes sense that he might be a long term love interest. And I think that's more interesting in the context of the Time Bureau continuing to operate mm-hmm. because we've discussed before that Arthur Darville may be I don't know serenading sheep in Glasgow or whatever. Uh, so he might be too busy to come back. So they might be able to just sort of have the Time Bureau be his legacy and make the Time Bureau sort of the authority figure where Rip used to be the authority figure, which would make me sad. I love Rip and I would hate to see him go, Mm -hmm. but it does seem like they're setting up for the Time Bureau to be more important unless the next two episodes fuck that up completely. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Not good. So I thought that was Um, neat. That is, I mean, wow, we really, we're just fucking plowing the field of this episode, man. There was, it was fertile land. And it was a good, it was a good use of A plot, B plot. Yes. And I, I love when an A plot and a B plot are being run by two separate characters in two separate settings, because it does usually allow you with the right combinations of characters in the right settings, it allows you to get a lot about everyone else. Mm -hmm. And this was a good episode in terms of utilizing it's B plot to provide development for a lot of characters, some of whom weren't even really there. Mm-hmm. And that's tight writing. That's really nice. Um, yes, this was a really tightly written episode right until the end scene. Yeah. Are like, we, here's, wanna... here's what the thing, here's what the episode does is it's got that fucking end scene. Like, and it spent this whole episode sort of turning tropes on its head. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm usually pretty good about it too. And then Sarah's like, and like, and John is like, oh, don't break Ava's heart. She's a good girl. And then Sarah, I hate when that happens so fucking much. Like, you don't have to have the, like, I have the decency to wait until the start of next episode. There is nothing more frustrating to me than when a character explicitly gets told not to do something. And the way you can just sort of tell if you've watched enough TV or read enough books or played enough whatever, that you know it's fucking coming, that they are explicitly now in the next five minutes going to disobey the direct request they just received for the purposes of drama and it makes me so fucking frustrated well the other thing is that like okay i'm gonna talk about sarah lance for a second because i think i wanted to and then i think we went into horror tropes or something i am so sick and tired and like i'm hoping that they're addressing it with mollus specifically so that we can see the end of this fucking thread for sarah's character which is her being like deep down i'm a piece of shit like no you're like first of all for Mick to have said Sarah is a hero this episode was such a big deal. And I was so happy that line existed. Yeah, it was really good. Um, and also, quick quick side note, so we yeah. can just sort of cover that quickly. The fact that we have a second occurrence of someone telling Mick that yeah. he's a good person and he doesn't immediately deny it. He just sort of goes, okay, fine. is mm-hmm. big for him. Continue. This episode was a lot for uh, Mick and Amaya's relationship, specifically. We'll go, we'll go into the fire totem stuff separately, yeah, but we've already started okay, with Sarah. Yeah, yeah, we're already started with Sarah. So. All right, fine. I, yeah. I'm hoping that this, by her actually being able, because we see her with the death totem, like, wearing it as a necklace in this season, because somebody was like, can I post spoiler photos? And Phil was like, I, I guess everyone I, was like, fuck it, why not? Fuck if I give a shit. So, the thing is that we know she's going to wield it, and we know she's going to be able to wield it for good, like, like, the cause of good. So, like, I'm hoping her being able to do that will help her get over this, like, I've committed 10 to 15 to 100 murders in my youth. Like, 
you're allowed like she as a character is allowed to grow and leave this part of herself behind she doesn't like, she shouldn't have to keep rehashing it because it's backwards instead of forwards for her when she does this you know it's not no. helping her grow or develop it's just her sort of going back to something that was like literally a, like a part of her character in that Arrow. That sort of gotten over. And like, like they literally used her Arrow character from season two that she really doesn't resemble that much anymore except for still being like Sarah Lance. And it was just really, I feel like there was a better way. At this point, you, yeah. can, you can accept that that's a part of her character you yeah. have to drop. Like, I don't really know Sarah from Arrow because I somehow, thank God, given everything you fucking told me, managed to miss watching Arrow. Again, thank God. So with Mm -hmm. that said, I don't really know Sarah Lance from Arrow. And I'm kind of glad because it's she's become such a good character in her own right. Because when Phil writes her, he's not just writing a woman he wants to fuck, Mark. He's writing a character that has narrative qualities outside of being a hotter version of some girl who didn't date you in high school. So, like, with that said, Sarah Lance is allowed to sort of develop and grow in a way that isn't just in a creepy male gaze way. And Mm -hmm. with that, I'm kind of like, you can drop the whole assassin thing now. She hasn't been... And and a narrative is... And this is where characters really differ from real human beings. Where, yeah, I guess for a real person it would probably be really hard to get over five years of being raised as a murder machine but in stories life isn't like that so she as a character in a narrative is allowed to drop these sort of grandfathered in aspects of her personality that are hangers on from her origins of being on arrow and being the fake black canary and all that shit where she doesn't have to be that what you said whatever but i'm not wrong um but that you know, that's something I hope to God that this is Legends getting their final take on it because they haven't ever really directly addressed it in a Sarah having her own plot about it way because the Lance of Longinus wasn't really her plot. It wasn't really anyone's plot. And season one was like Rip and Kendra. So hopefully... Lance of Longinus was a plot? Yeah, it might as well not have been because they retconned it. So point, like the point is, is that I'm hoping that this is sort of the end of that narrative arc and Sarah can just put that behind her completely and we don't have to go through this again because it's getting to the point where, yeah, it hamstrings any further positive growth or development she could have very directly by her literally explicitly saying, this is the happiest I've ever been. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I am going to put that aside because I'm going to regress as a character and regress narratively. Mm-hmm. And you can only take so much of that as a viewer before you start to get Because it's also sort of like, oh, okay, so when you say that, I like, fuck Nissa's drag, I guess, kind of thing, where I'm like, okay, so I, then... I'm not, I'm, I, I... This is a part of me also, again, full disclaimer, didn't watch Arrow. But Nissa and Sarah's relationship did not come at the healthiest point in Sarah's life. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's less I I it's it's less I don't know Anissa and I never loved Anissa, but a more like a situation of you can't take your good memories of Nissa out of the bad thing that happened to you mm-hmm. and the situation you were put in and the larger font of problems that came from being on um being trained by the league and that makes sense because ava and her relationship with ava has been a lot less fraught and has been 
like has not been sort of tied up in all these other negative associations. Yeah. It's not like Sarah was forcibly conscripted on the team and the team is a bunch of murder assassin whatevers. So Ava is just a, a healthy, normal, ca- like not casual, but like normal, emotionally positive and beneficial relationship. And, yeah. I personally think, frankly, I'm kind of tired of people acting like I, I you know... I'm just tired of people acting like Nissa and Sarah have to be Endgame. We have hit a we have hit a point where there are I feel like one of the biggest issues with having only so few queer characters, and this yes. is going to be something I go into in a little bit, is when the two of them break up, you go, "Well, fuck! Who else are they going to date? Who else are they going to talk yep. to?" Because now they have this whole fractured fraught relationship with literally the only queer, other queer character in your narrative. So this is part of the reason I've always sort of been resentful and angry more than normal at queer breakups on a narrative level and also because yeah, like it. I have like, three canon relationships and that's part of the reason I'm still really mad about volume two of Young Avengers but I won't go into that um, with my last breath I'm still a, a, a lot of that was really shitty and awful because Billy and Teddy were like a really big thing for me in high school when I was a young gay but uh, David also got to explicitly say he was bisexual so it's sort of like six, you take two steps forward two steps back you take oh, the wait. moon and you take the sun yeah, so point being is it starts to get more frustrating when you only have one or two queer characters in yeah. a narrative and they pull this shit. But the thing is, is we're past that because we have hit a point where Sarah has had multiple non-male love interests. So it's not like if she doesn't date Nissa, number one, Sarah doesn't have to end up with a woman, but let's assume that she does. So even if she does and only dates women, there are still more women for her to choose from now. There's not, okay, well, if you don't date Nyssa, then you're just not going to end up with anyone at the end of the series because there's literally nobody else the writers have created that would be a conceivable pair-off for you. Um, Sarah wait, can I just take a second? Yes? Can I just take a second and say that this is strongly a uh, Nyssa Laurel podcast? Uh, I ship Nyssa and Felicity super hard, and apparently other people have been now, too, which is nice, because I thought that was just, like, my little crack ship. Nyssa and Laurel is uh, a healthy place for Nyssa that was then completely yanked out from under us. The other thing is Nissa and Laurel was a good example of that coming from a really healthy perspective for both of them. Like it was beneficial for both of them in a way that was really positive. But uh, the writers and Mark specifically, allegedly, uh, hated Katie Cassidy for some reason. Um, probably because she wouldn't have sex with them. Yeah, and allegedly. So, yeah, allegedly, finger quotes. Um, so, you know, Laurel got screwed out of being able to date Nissa. But it's a good pairing. So is Laurel Felicity. I'm so is Laurel Felicity too. But so is Nissa and Felicity. And there are other people I could ship Nissa with, and there are other people I could ship Sarah with. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like I've hit a point with Sarah's fans who are like, Nissa has to be Endgame. Is it? We just I, talked I about how. I think you can just say I've hit a point with Sarah's fans. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's the sort of thing where when there's this specific drumbeat of Sarah has to be Endgame, we just spent this whole thing about how Sarah's character has really progressed and she's grown yeah. and developed. And it's okay for her to grow past being with Nyssa as an Endgame thing mm-hmm. because it doesn't invalidate the fact that they were together and it doesn't invalidate the things that might have been good about their relationship, both as in a larger narrative context and, a, and, a, and an everything context for the two of them, but... I, I, it, it almost feels like very petulant at this point. Yeah. Like, except that Sarah's got a new character arc and has just basically started over from scratch as a character on Legends. And yeah, like, I mean, and the, yeah. And the thing is, is like, yeah, Sarah's a very strong character, but it's also like, if we keep rehashing Sarah's same plot points every season, how the hell are other like people supposed to? Part of the to- problem 
with her regressing is I know she's not going to go down the route of regressing completely and turning back into a violent murder assassin, which would be a sort of resolution, not a very good one, but mm-hmm. it's rare, but you can have characters backslide and go back yeah. to being awful. Um, but that's not going to happen here. Just it's not, this isn't that kind of show left this season. Also, it's just, it's just not, it's not that kind of show. That's, that's yeah. something that happens on a show that has, established anti-heroes and 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 what you can just say arrow you can just say arrow does it because i don't think they're aware ollie backslid i'm talking about i'm talking about how now that they're not sure if they want earth 2 laurel to be the black canary or dinah drake to be the black canary they're like dinah is a murder crazy vengeance driven motorcycle that's also that's that's a that's a that's a little different because that's a deliberate attempt to sort of push her aside as an option and sort of narratively write her out it's um it's like how uh it's like how in the third Hunger Games book they make uh other part of the love triangle an asshole for no reason so that she can get oh, with the guy. Oh yeah, good point. I'm not I'm not gonna do the discourse here. I, I didn't care that much about the books. So but that idea of like that's a whole other thing. What I'm talking about in terms of like another narrative option is if they made the deliberate choice to have her regress and go back to who she was and end the narrative there and make a point about how you know, like what made her change or what didn't, what made her not change basically, but they're not doing that. They're just having her regress. And the part of the frustration there is I know that that's not the way that the, the, the narrative path is going to branch. And I'm going to be stuck with Sarah learning the same fucking lesson again. And I need it to be the last time because we're starting to hit that point where I'm like, it, it, it feels, it's yeah. like how they repeat, they make new kid shows every two years because the viewers age out of the demographic. Yeah, I, it's like we're doing that with narrative arcs, and I don't need to see this again with Sarah. We've mm-hmm. well established it by now. Legends gets its take on it because this is her show now, and she's basically not coming back mm-hmm. to Arrow, which is fine and good. So do it. Don't ever talk about it again. I'm tired of it. Well, you know who was shown slightly regressing this episode, and then like didn't is uh is like Mick. <laughs> is this well, episode? I, I I didn't I didn't think of it as regressing. I thought, yeah. and again. This, this is in large part. Well, you're right. Regress is the wrong word for it because it's not like he went out and was like robbing he, a he bank. Drew, because this is the sort of thing where yeah, this is this contributes to my larger yeah. autistic reading. Mick hates change in routine. A death yes. of a close pet, especially when you have an emotional bond with, and it's really common for autistic people to have a really intense emotional bond with um, certain things or objects. Mm-hmm. In um, so he cared about that rat a lot, and it died unexpectedly. And so he withdrew Just and like was his clearly husband. immensely upset. Yeah. But it's the sort of thing where it's even worse because it's not necessarily about the, it's not a fully recognized person, but the emotional bond is really strong. And, and it, it's, I'm trying to describe it from like my experience yeah. here. So it's a little, little jumbled. Sorry. But like Go when ahead. something like that happens, you would shut yourself off really hard and you are just not emoting or mm-hmm. responding at all. Like Mick being largely nonverbal this episode, mm-hmm. Mick sort of going cold and quiet and pulling inward is really in line with that kind of grief over losing something you cared about um, as like an autistic person. So I think the thing I really liked about him using the fire totem is we don't see a big flashbang. Oh, Mick's setting the whole place on fire. Oh, it's so cool. Look at all the money we Mm -hmm. spent on this that we don't have. We see him take it. There's like a bit where it's like, oh, something big just happened, but we don't see it happen. Like what happens off screen. And then Mick has a very calm 
control over it. And then that, because of all the stuff we talked about in the Vietnam episode, about the symbolic sort of use of fire as a Mm -hmm. weapon in stories and the very symbolic use of fire in Mick's narrative as a weapon and a tool of destruction. Mm -hmm. It was nice to see Mick exerting. Yeah. I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I compared it, I actually made a gift set comparing it, where you can see in Mick's life he has lit himself on fire to harm himself. And this is the first time he's on fire and he's not in pain. And then there's sort of like this very, like Amaya says to him, you're a good man. And he says, what if you're wrong? And I think it's so interesting that like in their relationship, she has this unwavering faith in him. And then he has this unwavering faith in her, but he has no faith in himself, especially when she tells him things about himself yes he, he doesn't he doesn't was, argue yeah. but he almost like asks her because he's like afraid of the answer mm-hmm. he's like what if you're wrong because he doesn't want to answer it himself because he's this also is, giving her he's afraid of yeah. confronting himself by himself i mean you have to remember also that he burned his mother alive so he's kind of giving her a chance to back out because i think you know, like, Ray gets hurt on his watch, and then Amaya gets hurt. Like, he, when Sarah, like, throws Amaya across the room and I think steps on her leg, like, throws himself into Sarah. Yeah. And, like, it's very... Like, Nick so feels like he failed everyone this episode. But for him to actually, like, hurt Amaya intentionally with the totem would kill him. Yeah. So no, he's really, yeah. so cautious about it. And it's the most careful we've seen him about any strategy and because Nick is good yeah. at strategy, but they're usually very direct sort of Gordian yeah. not solutions that he's the yeah. only one, with the courage or the um, yeah. right way of thinking to do. He can very be very blunt and to the point. This is the most considered and measured we've yes. seen him as a character. Um, I just think it's really interesting that like the, when he works with Amaya, usually she's like, okay, I'm going to come into your world. I'm going to be a, criminal i'm gonna be a pirate and then she's like no you have to come into my world and he's like i don't think you want that and she's like no absolutely this is what i want and he's like uh he's literally the like when amaya's like do the thing he's literally the bob's burgers fine but i'm gonna complain the whole time what i thought was really interesting about his confrontation with nate is that nate says were you day drinking again and we know for a fact that he said to nate the only thing my dad was good for was drinking and i was like oh that's an emotional cavalcade I'm not ready to address. Like, there was just a lot, like, this episode really could have thrown itself to just being horror. And I was a little actually worried it was going to focus too much on death with Sarah, which is a good thing that it didn't, because the longer you look at her, the worse she looks. But it actually instead showed what makes the team strong. And then also what Sarah considers strength versus what she needs to adapt into her own idea of strength, which is love. I mean, also the ending was like really, it was like disappointing, but I'm hoping that they're going to say, well, you need to open yourself. Like the whole point of this is that you can open yourself to love both for Ava because she loves Ava, but the real person she needs to learn to like, like love yourself, please, you horrible blonde assassin. Like, please love yourself. We are so sad. Okay. Do you want to talk about next week? I initially just thought it was going to be about robots. But then it might be clones. It might be. There's a lot of thoughts I actually have, but I want to save them for the podcast. Pro- uh, the podcast for the episode proper because I'm not quite sure if it's clones or robots now. And I'm just. I. I, I guess my big hope is is that Ava and Sarah just sort of get back together at this point. I, I don't want this to turn into will they won't they drama for the rest of the season. I want Sarah to admit that she fucked up and made a mistake because she was afraid. And if for Ava to be fine with it, and for Ava to just because like I, I I hate shit like this. I always have. I always do. I hate when couples are broken up like this for stupid shit like this and it's just exhausting and bad the yeah. writing 
frankly. It's lazy, and I hate it. So hopefully it's fixed. But it was nice um, at the very end of the episode when Gary was like, okay, so what do you want to do? And John is like, um, I'm going to raw you. And Gary was like, well, okay then. That ending yeah, note was first. that. What'd you say? You have to make. You have to roll for it first. Oh, <laughs> you rolled a one. It was. It was cute. I liked it. It was. It was a nice. It was. I mean, everything before it was kind of like shitty, but like that was really nice. So uh, it was really cute. It was. It's like that sort of nice, and it's like wholesome. It's the other thing that I liked. It's like John was like going to his D and D meeting. It wasn't just the two of them having sex mm-hmm. afterwards or like doing like coy sex weird shit like as much as we just made a joke about it yeah. it's nice that it was like john going to his D meeting because that's clearly something that's important to him and he wants to get to know him mm-hmm. this stuff matters when you really only interact with bi characters who are yeah. you know the this the, the joke about the, their sexuality is is a joke yep. most of the time the end point is haha they're so slutty they'll sleep with anything so it's nice when they have these non-sexualized sort of should we make a? Should we? Should we make it? Should we take a hit at uh at Lucifer, which also is like, yeah, Lucifer's by, but ha- should we take a hit at them or should we just let? Them I haven't. I haven't themselves? seen it, but it makes me. It kind of makes me sad that they did a whole show because uh, Lucifer and the Endless would have been really fun for the Legends to deal with, and that would have made me immensely happy because I, as a very young goth teen, um, loved sandman uh more than someone who was you know 12 13 should have really appreciated the series but mm-hmm. that's not important the point i had no adult supervision for the books i read and that said i would love to see the endless and lucifer fucking around with the legends mm-hmm. but because of the show we at least won't see lucifer maybe we'll see the endless um and yes. john and lucifer have always had a fun relationship it makes me sad they can't hang out and sort of have hey. a back i was gonna say do you think we'll get clarion and then i was like with who's fucking like at least like Damien Dark's magic we can just say he waves his hand and things happen. Clarion is so dynamic and weird that like no we can't. Well a lot of DC magic is really dynamic and Legends and Doom Patrol as a crossover would be a hell of a thing but they'd have to get well, someone because we have the good. Titans TV show coming. I I would so. I would say I would literally saw my own leg off for Gerard Way to do a Legends Doom Patrol crossover. I would I would 100% blood ritual sacrifice that would be i think i say it i have mm-hmm. spoken into existence and now i am consumed for a yearning for what i cannot have and what right. will never be gonna, so i think that's a good point to end the podcast yes, on next gonna, episode's gonna be weird and i'm probably gonna have a lot of sci-fi thoughts on it let's so that'll get be fun. weird let's get uh, weird so i hope everyone enjoys our genre history explanations stories whatever yes uh and uh, we're, we enjoy sharing them with you all right stay gay out there. Stay gay. this was a mistake good night Hey.